Tonight we're going to kind of be answering a couple of questions. One question is, uh, maybe you've asked before, but this question of, is God in control of everything that happens, or is like man partially responsible for what man chooses to do? Right? And those two sometimes in our minds seem to kind of conflict. Like, who's making the calls? Do I decide to do this, or did God decide to do this? Uh, so that's one question. That's the uh, kind of a secondary question. I don't think the main point of tonight, but um, we're, we'll have a little answer for it tonight, which is cool. And then secondly, this question, um, vague as it may be, it'll come into more focus, but how much is Jesus worth? So, and, and maybe more specifically, how much is Jesus worth to you or for you? Okay? So, um, we're going to hit about 29 verses in Matthew 26. So let's just start right in. If somebody could read the first five verses of Matthew 26, that'd be great. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the same Sorry, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Okay, so this talks about the Passover. We're not going to have time to like talk in detail about the Passover, but the Passover, just in brief, was this specific annual meal that kind of commemorated Israel's flight out of Egypt, right? Um, Exodus 12. And the, it's going to talk in a little bit about the days of unleavened bread. It's like a seven or eight day period of time surrounding the Passover. The Passover being like kind of the first or second day, depending on how you look at it. There's a day of preparation. The Passover is this big significant meal. And the, the feast, the days of unleavened bread, continue on for another week or so. Um, so in verse 5 it says, uh, well, they're plotting, they begin plotting how to arrest Jesus in stealth and how to kill him. And it says, they decide, we don't want to do this during the feast lest there be an uproar. So I'll just ask you guys, like, what are some, what are some reasons that there would be an uproar if they, um, if they arrested and killed Jesus in this time? What are your thoughts? Is it like a holiday? It's like arresting someone on Christmas? It's like, come on, just, just wait. That's a good, a good analogy. Yeah, arresting someone on Christmas. Yeah, yeah, potentially that's, that's part of it. Certainly, there's like religious fervor is like at its height right now mm -hmm. for for Israel, and um, there's I've heard five or ten times the amount of people. Uh, that typically reside in Jerusalem, there's that many more people that are there to celebrate the Passover together. So, yeah, it seems like a, a time when everybody's kind of like on religious edge anyway, kind of excited, so maybe it's an, an appropriate time. Anything else? Why would there be an uproar? He has a large following. Yeah, and even like a large positive mm -hmm. following, right? Like, there's tons of people, the people who were... Uh, few days earlier saying Hosanna as Jesus is entering the city and people who have seen Jesus miracles and the compassion that he's demonstrated yeah there people a lot of people like Jesus I mean contrary to what we kind of think of when we think through the passion week everybody's against Jesus well there's some people that really at least appreciated Jesus and a lot of those people think he came into the city to overturn right. the government right yeah so and so yeah there's like that tension right yeah, so that for that reason, man, people would be ticked if all of a sudden Jesus is arrested. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of the opposite of what they thought. Exactly. Yeah. So Jesus, he speaks of his, his coming death. This is like the fourth time, at least that Matthew records, that Jesus is, like recently in the story that Jesus has said, hey, I'm going to die. It's kind of getting more and more specific and um, what Matthew tries to point out, I think the other gospel writers try to point out as well, that things are happening exactly according to plan. Like it says uh, in the first couple of verses, 
hey, I'm going to be, the Son of Man's going to be delivered up to be crucified. And then the next verse, then the chief priests and elders, they gather to decide how to arrest him. It's like there's, it, this stuff isn't taking Jesus by surprise. He's certainly not out of control. He's not running from what he knows is about to happen to him. He doesn't have to, like, go into the middle of Jerusalem. Like, he could, Jesus could have put a stop to this, but knowing what was going to happen, certainly. And it seems like the gospel writers, including Matthew, they don't want us to think for a second that like Jesus is out of control. Like he, he knows he's, this thing is unfolding just as it has been planned. Uh, but he's giving, getting kind of more and more specific. So um, somebody read uh, verses 6 through 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. All right, so you guys see what's what's happened here. This woman decides to dump an expensive oil and perfume on Jesus' head. Um, what's what's the significance of that? Or why is why would you say that this woman, uh, who John identifies as Mary, Mary the sister of Martha and Lazarus, um, well, why is she doing this? What's what's the significance of it? Or what do you what have you heard or what could you guess here? Not seeing her heart exactly, but what's she doing? She's honoring it. Okay, so <clears throat> at the time that was a way of honoring somebody, right? Like yeah. it's not very honorable now, but um, <laughs> But yeah, it, it would be common for somebody who's like hosting an event to anoint the head of especially the important guests. And it was a way even of inaugurating sometimes in Old Testament, you can read about it, of inaugurating like kings and priests and, um, and prophets that happened with all of um, those significant people. So yeah, there's, there's this way that she's honoring him. What, what else? What's another reason why she may have... There's the, the element of sacrifice. You know, it mentions that it's... Can you say it's an expensive... Yeah, very expensive ointment. So yeah. something just valuable that, you know, she's uh, sacrificing. Yeah, she's giving up to... In connection with honor. It's like, yeah. Jesus also seems to be hinting at a foreshadowing. Like, she made the choice to do this, maybe not knowing that it would foreshadow his death. He, he, I don't know, it kind of goes to the point you were, the question you were talking about, like, are we in control or does God orchestrate everything? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. So, um, before somebody was buried, usually after they died, before they're buried, you'd put all sorts of oils and spices and perfumes on the dead body before putting him in a grave or tomb. Um, with a criminal's death, sometimes you would anoint the body like this before their death, knowing that they weren't going to allow uh, you know, the, that kind of thing to occur mm-hmm. after the death. So, um, yeah, and I don't know what, like, what um, this woman's if she actually had some knowledge of, hey, I mean, it seems that she she at least knows this is a significant time, and um, so does does she know that she's really done it to prepare Jesus for burial? Uh, maybe I would think probably not, but but um, who knows? But she would be the only one who picked up on it, even though he says it over and over again. Yeah, Nobody right. Seems to get it. Right. I think there's a few clues in here that we'll see that it's like. This gal, Mary, I mean, this isn't the first time for her, but she seems to be getting things a lot better than some of Jesus' other disciples. Yeah, so Jesus explains she's done it to prepare me for burial, so it seems it's some sort of foreshadowing. I think at the very least we could say that she recognized some high value of who Jesus is. 
kind of like you were saying. Um, she was giving him priority, like even above her own, the, the things that she owns. And maybe it was because she was the one that was like at Jesus' feet, listening closely to his teaching and paying attention. I remember when the sister Martha was like running around just doing different mm -hmm. things. She was paying special attention and, and who knows what it was, but at least we can say that she was demonstrating a, a trust in Jesus, a trust for who he is. And maybe she knows even more than the rest of the disciples about his purpose. Now, the disciples, of course, are, are a little bit confused by this, and they think that it's rather wasteful. And so Jesus makes this statement that I think I've heard so often, um, not explicitly always, but, but misapplied when he says, you always have the poor with you. Okay, so I don't know about you all, but... Like, I've heard people, and there's a place in the Old Testament that God says that as well, through Moses. Um, like, I've heard that before, almost a defeatist, hey, we, we can't really do anything about poverty. We're never really going to solve that, that problem of the poor, so we don't have to worry about it so much, or we don't have to worry that there's poor. They're always going to be around. Right? I mean, that's, that's I've heard people kind of use the passage that way, so maybe even, so let's get back to doing more important things like worshiping Jesus or something. And there's a problem with that. Uh, one problem is Jesus is probably alluding to the Old Testament passage. It's Deuteronomy 15.11. Listen to what the extended version of that portion says. Here's, here's the quote. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So it's not there's always going to be poor among you, so don't worry about it. It's, you're never going to fix that. But there's always going to be poor among you, so be very generous and give to those who need. Okay. Um, just to, I don't know, maybe that's uh, not as big of a deal to you guys, but I just I feel like I, I heard that as an excuse before. And it also sounds like Jesus is saying at this specific time, when I'm physically present here with um, with Mary, what she's doing seems to make sense. Or maybe there's going to be a time when it makes sense to care for the poor then or to, or to spend what you have on caring for the poor. Um, just so like if, if Jesus, which we're in a time that Jesus isn't physically like present here right before us. If Jesus walked in the door, then maybe we wouldn't just start to have a meeting on how we can meet the needs of the poor, but maybe we'd be like on our faces, like worshiping him. Um, but like more important than just the specific scenarios of how we should spend our, our resources, um, kind of a summary, I think, of what Jesus is getting at is this. A heart for worship, or a heart of worship for Jesus, is more valuable than the pragmatic demonstrations of that heart. So what you're actually doing in those things isn't, isn't the most important thing. It's the, the condition of your heart or what the desire of your heart is in it. I love a quote I read from a guy named F.W. Bear. And it, he said, The beauty of uncalculating generosity is not to be measured by the yardstick of utility. The beauty of like what, what she was demonstrating, the beauty of uncalculated generosity isn't to be measured by the yardstick of utility. Like, well, well technically, you could have spent money better this way. It's like, no, what's going on is a generous heart being demonstrated. Um, and so Jesus isn't so um, Jesus isn't so concerned. I've seen this again and again in the book of Matthew as we look through it. He's not so concerned about like practically what makes the most logical, efficient financial sense in all of your decisions. Like he's not measuring things. I think it's been clear by earthly measurable values that really to him are insignificant. Um, but he wants us. He wants our heart. We've said that a hundred times, but he wants our heart. It's kind of like um, a similar example. Like sometimes people will save a lot of money now so that it can gain interest so that eventually when they're older, you have more money to give, right? Like that's, that's, there could definitely be a good heart in that. Somebody might say, I'm going to choose to be generous right now, even if that means I don't have as much later. And the reality is my $1 that I give to somebody right now in generosity can be just as valuable 
as the hundred dollars that that becomes with interest. We're like, in in God's come on in, Jesse. We might have to sit on the stools back there. All of our other chairs are like. In God's economy, one dollar versus a hundred dollars, like the efficient, that doesn't matter to Him. It's like whatever the heart, whatever the heart is demonstrating. So, and Mary is demonstrating here the right heart that she's recognizing just the supreme value of Jesus, and she's honoring Him with this gift. And I, that's just, it's the message of, of Matthew in many ways. Just our, our tendency to view everything really like pragmatically and tangibly. Like the Pharisees that we were saying, especially at the beginning of the book, they see their relationship with God as just this never-ending list of rules. Like what you can see and feel. If I do this and I don't do this, and if I don't do this, then I won't do this. And it's all of these things that are just like practical and right before us. And the disciples here, they're just trying to figure out, well, what can we see? Like how, what's more valuable out of this or that? All the while, Jesus, I think, is continually calling out, as Matthew describes, love me. He said that's, um, that's like the summary of all of it we read a couple of chapters ago, a love for him. Have a heart, give your heart of worship to me. That's what I want. And the really cool thing is because this woman, Mary, is such a good example of that, guess what we're doing 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later? Uh, on the other side of the world, just like verse 13 says, we're telling in memory of her what she has done. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's sometimes in scripture things pop out like, oh, that's like talking right about what's going on here. Like when Jesus prays in John 16 or 17, kind of a prayer for future disciples of his. It's like, oh, that's kind of neat. I love that stuff. All right, I'll read. Um, Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, and everybody like hisses and throws <laughs> went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which is like 120 denarii, which is like a third of your yearly salary. So. What is that for you all? <laughs> 10,000, 20,000, whatever it is. I don't know. 30,000. Um, but it's not a small chunk. I mean, it's good, decent money. From that moment, he sought, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover or, or eat, eat this Passover meal um, at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, that's if you know much about that, that meal, it's not like some simple thing that you like throw in the microwave, but there's a lot of preparation to happen for it. It's going to take some time. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Now, I'll stop there. I want you guys to picture this, and to picture the the Lord's Supper here. Take the Leonardo da Vinci picture of the Lord's Supper in your mind. You know what I'm talking about, and then like crumple it up and toss it aside. Can you do that with da Vinci? Um, and and picture this instead. Probably um, more likely, instead of a bunch of people sitting at a rectangular table and chairs, um, the the scene would have been more like this. Um, I forget the, what the term for it is, but basically if you can picture like a, a U-shaped formation of um, couches or pillows like on the ground, so say like the chairs over there, the couch there, and if these chairs were coming here, and there's a table in the middle, and they're like more on the, like low to the ground, and the disciples and Jesus or any like family or group of people like in this meal context probably would have been like laying down with their feet facing outward, their heads like toward the food in the middle, and they'd be laying probably on their sides, probably on their left like elbow, and they'd be eating with their right hand. And they're all like kind of filed up kind of around the table like that. And one side of the table is open here 
for like serving the food and whatever. But so you can kind of picture that. Um, it makes a little more sense of uh, when the um, which gospel is it? Is it the Gospel of John? I think talks about how John was like in in the bosom of Jesus, and he leans against Jesus to talk to him. If you can imagine a bunch of like people laying on their sides, you've got somebody kind of behind you, and so you kind of like lean back into. If you want to talk this way, you kind of lean back this way, so you can picture it a little bit better than like them sitting on chairs and he kind of. <laughs> so, um, so just to kind of maybe give you guys a picture uh, hopefully a little bit more accurately than what um, popular art has um, alright where are we uh, reclined at table with the twelve verse twenty one and as they were eating he said truly I say to you one of you will betray me and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other is it I Lord he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Um, the way, again, that, that John describes Jesus kind of revealing to Judas that it's him, it maybe is a different little statement that Jesus said. Not 100% sure, but a lot of the disciples probably shared, <clears throat> shared the same dipping bowl with Jesus. And so I've heard it understood that he who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. That's almost as if saying, one who has eaten with me, somebody who's close, who's a friend or family. Like, it's it's that close of a relationship of the type of person that's going to betray me. The Son of Man goes, and again, you can put together some more of the story with, um, with the other gospel writers. I'm just going to stick mainly to what Matthew has here, but um, verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Which is like a kind of indirect way of saying yes. It's affirmative. So, I asked about Mary, like what was the significance of her pouring out or breaking open that alabaster flask and pouring it on. Jesus said, what do you guys, what's the significance of Judas kind of selling out Jesus? Or why does it seem that he has done this thing? You might have to speculate a little bit, but you might also be able to draw from some things here or other places in scripture. Like why does Judas decide to do such a horrific thing? Any thoughts? Well, because, like, so in John, I think I was reading yesterday, like, it says that, like, he says, like, a devil is in you or something. So, I mean, I feel like that's the reason, like, you kind of have to, like, I would imagine to, like, be in the presence of Jesus and, like, deny him or, like, want to betray him in half. It's, like, that would be the only thing that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so John says, and I think Luke also says, um something about Satan entered him. Yeah. Right? That kind of turns you against Jesus. That's that's a reason why, I would say. Yeah. And I, who knows, like, exactly what that means, but that's um, that's good. Yeah, that's that's one reason. Anything else? He, he was around Jesus, but he, he had not, obviously not become a follower of Jesus. Hmm. Um, so uh, maybe at least to the extent of the woman or yeah. somebody else. I think when you don't follow Jesus, things like a third of your yearly wage is definitely more appealing. Yeah. Like you that's know, worth it. He might have been like, you know, I've followed this guy, but there have been so many people that have said they're Messiah. And so this is what I've done, and who knows if he is. He hadn't fully placed his trust in him. I mean, you don't do that. It doesn't really make sense to not take the money. 
Yeah. Like, in the world's eyes, the money is way more appealing than what Jesus had to offer him. Okay. Jesus has taught that like where your treasure is, like your treasure, your coins, your money, there your heart is yeah. also. And so I think with money, you see where these two characters, where their heart is. Yeah. She puts her, she puts her finances, mm-hmm. She sacrifices financially because her heart is moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so I think with our finances, it shows where our, what we spend our money on shows what we, where our heart goes. Yeah. Um, and so his obviously was not yeah. in Jesus's direction. Yeah, there, there's something like he has some greed for some money that's desirable. Um, in John 12, it talks about Judas and kind of how he was the, he would keep track of the money bag of the disciples, right? And it says something about how he would, he would take stuff, he would, he would take money from that freely. Like he just had this desire for, for money that was maybe more than his desire for Jesus. Um, yeah, that's good. It's a really good point. So, a really interesting statement that I think helps to answer it in part as well. Why was Judas doing this? Is verse twenty-four, and this is very um, peculiar <laughs> verse, but um, fascinating. Verse twenty-four says, "The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." So. We see in this one half of a verse, really, two things seemingly happening at the same time. One, everything is happening just like it's supposed to happen. We've seen that in many ways in Matthew about the life of Jesus. <coughs> Stuff has been written in the past that Jesus' life is, is fulfilling in many different ways. The Son of Man goes, or things are happening to him as it is written of him, but... Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So Judas experiences some amount of responsibility for this. So woe to him. So this is where we get like to this um, this question that has been debated for centuries, it seems, like of, of everything that happens, how much of it is is that God willed it to happen and how much of it is that that man has you know chosen to do that is God entirely in control of everything that happens or is man responsible for what he chooses to do and I think this verse is one of a few that we can find in scripture that says yes to both of those things right um, Jesus isn't I he's not surprised like I was saying at the beginning he's not surprised by Ju- Judas's betrayal in fact, he's kind of going along with it, right? Like he even tells Judas in another gospel account, hey, go ahead and do what, what you're planning on doing, right? Like he's very aware of what's going to happen. Things are happening just as God planned. But woe to the one who's going to betray Jesus. There's a responsibility to the actions of Judas. So Judas was ironically playing a role in God's plan of redemption that brings Jesus to the cross and raised from the dead, but at the same time, Judas was greedy for 30 pieces of silver. And both of those are happening somehow at the same time. And tonight, we're not going to try to reconcile that. But I think the answer to that question asked at the beginning is that the Bible kind of teaches that both are true and happening simultaneously. Um, but I think Matthew is wanting to do something here um, and like proving God's sovereignty, I don't think is like his first goal on the list. Uh, like I said, all of the gospel writers tend to like to throw in there, hey, these things are happening as it is written, that type of stuff, just to show, hey, God's, God's in control. It's not that Jesus is, is not in control. But I think what Matthew is doing here, I think primarily he's setting up a comparison, like we've been talking about a little bit, of this woman and of Judas. So you have this woman who gave for Jesus an alabaster flask with expensive ointment, we find in another gospel worth 300 denarii, so like almost a full year's salary. And Judas, who received 30 shekels or 120 denarii. We have the woman who Jesus explains her memory will extend to the whole world forever. 
And then we have Judas, of whom Jesus says, better for that man if he had not been born, like ever. So we're seeing somebody, the woman who is worshiping Jesus with, with all that she has as her greatest priority, and we see Judas who's just using Jesus to get whatever he wants. Okay? Um, do you all know, like in another gospel account, who actually, when, when Mary is anointing Jesus with this oil perfume, um, it says in, in Matthew, the disciples were indignant, saying, why the waves that could have been sold for money to give for? You know who another gospel explains that person was that actually asked that question on behalf of the disciples? It was Judas. Yeah, so you can look in John, I think it's John. Yeah, John 12 says this. Judas Iscariot is describing the same thing. One of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? <laughs> and check this out. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So how ironic that Judas is the one to call out this woman's expenditures and call them into question when he's going to turn around and like sell out Jesus for a a third of the price that the woman was spending on Jesus. Just something very um, ironic and um, gross that's happening there. So the woman and Judas, you could say that both of them were a type of disciple of Jesus, and I think that Matthew is illustrating the difference between those who truly have an understanding of the value of Jesus and those who don't. So you have this woman who has recognized the importance of Jesus and she has she has given him priority and she's worshiping him with all that she has. She's recognizing Jesus' supreme value. And we have Judas, who is the one who's not recognizing Jesus for who he is. In fact, did you notice when all of the other disciples um, are saying, is it I, Lord, that's going to betray you? Is it I, Lord, that Lord meaning master? And what's Judas say? Is it I, not Lord, but Rabbi? Now, it's not wrong to call Jesus Rabbi or teacher, but um, it is if you're failing to agree that he's everything else that he says to be. So this passage is showing two people that when the perfect kind of opportunity presents itself, their priorities are kind of showing where their heart is. The woman, when Jesus is physically present with her, her priorities show through and that she stops what she's doing and she says, now is the time to worship Jesus with all that I have. And Judas, when this perfect opportunity presents itself, um, when there's this anxiety among the religious leaders and they're plotting to arrest Jesus and stealth and kill him, his priorities shows through and he says, now is the time to, to use this relationship I have with Jesus to get what I want, which in his case was more money. And I ask you guys this, and we're going to discuss it just a little bit here in a few minutes, but which type of disciple are you? Are you one that's like worshiping Jesus with with all that you have, recognizing his like value over anything else? Or do you use Jesus to kind of just get what you want out of this life? And I would argue or I would I would guess that when certain opportunities happen in your life, that's kind of gonna show actually where your heart is at the time for that. So we'll come back to that question. This, this section we're going to look at tonight ends um, with the Lord's Supper. And so somebody read just those last three verses, 26 to 29 for <clears throat> Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay. Um, Jesus is talking about a new covenant, which is going to be centered on him that is replacing an old covenant that Jesus made with Moses uh, and the, the, the Mosaic covenant, which was kind of centered around 
um, animal sacrifice. And this new covenant that was to come, by the way, was just another thing that was prophesied. Jeremiah 31 um, talks about it other places. But that first covenant was delivered to God's people on Mount Sinai. And if you remember, it was kind of ratified by Moses, like throwing animal blood on people. Um, so it's kind of blood is the initiation or the, the uh, ratification of this covenant. In the same way, Jesus' blood that's about to be spilled that he's talking about in this passage is, is um, similarly initiating this new um, covenant. Also, when Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I think this is foreshadowing Revelation 19, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a future time when, we, when, when Jesus will eat this type of a meal together uh, with those who follow him. Um, now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard this passage before plenty of times or one of the parallel passages in Scripture plenty of times, the, the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, you know. Um, because I think virtually all branches of Christianity participate in some way in this type of uh, remembrance, whether it's called Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Communion, like I usually call it, um, the Eucharist. I mean, it's all a, a similar um, activity, though it looks really different. Like, that's I mean, it's carried out. Uh, differently, but it all involves kind of these two elements, and uh, we we do this like we participate in this on Sunday night. If you joined us there, that's when we uh, participate in this uh, act of remembering and looking forward. Um, but I want you guys, if you can, for just a second, to try to look at this passage as if you hadn't heard it before, like. Pretend like it's your first hearing, and Jesus says, Hey, with this bread, take, eat. This is my body. And with the cup, he says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. Eat my body, drink my blood. Like, kind of makes you feel kind of uncomfortable, or makes me feel uncomfortable. If you think that makes you feel uncomfortable, let me read John 6. Jesus is talking about himself being the bread of life. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. It's like he's... I mean, he's not going light here. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And Jesus is saying these things publicly in the synagogue in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen? Like, no kidding. Like, that's... Um, something significant is going on here. I want you guys just to consider this. Either... Either Jesus is calling his disciples to cannibalism or he's calling them to some extreme devotion to and participation with himself. Now we don't believe uh, in, in this context, I don't believe that, that the bread that Jesus held up actually somehow turned into his body and the, the wine was actually like physically became his blood. But certainly Jesus isn't presenting this call to, to join him in this as, huh, this is no no big deal. You know? Like like sometimes we receive communion, right? Like I do this all the time. He doesn't just say, hey, look at this bread and wine or like touch it and feel it, but he says, eat and drink. And there's this weightiness to it. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place this, this section, the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, right after talking about Judas, all three of them do. Dave, would you mind to grab me just a little bit more? Thank you. You're just like that Mary woman. <laughs> <laughs> no more things. Um, 
so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they put that event like right after talking about Judas. Matthew and Mark also include this closely related story of the woman at Bethany. Okay, so I think this is an appropriate ending. An appropriate way to kind of wrap up that, that the woman understood the weightiness of following Jesus and she expressed it in her actions of, of who Jesus is and, and what it was what it would look like to follow him, what he was worth. Judas doesn't like this calling that Jesus is giving. In fact, he likes money more, it seems. And so there's this line being drawn that in that John 6 uncomfortable passage that Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, over and over and over again. It's just after that that, um, that, the, uh, that it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. That's too far. That's that's too significant. Whatever you're calling us to, that's where that's too significant. We're out. And that seems like the same choice potentially that Judas has made. But Jesus is calling us to an extreme devotion to and participation with himself. So let's go to um, back to this question. What kind of disciple are you? Are you worshiping Jesus? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go for it. So I guess, I mean, he, he probably doesn't mean literally, right? Like, what is the significance of that? But he has flesh and... Yeah. What do you guys think? What, who can help with an answer on that? I think you're... Like, it's what you were talking about. He's showing... I think it shows a lot of things. One, I think it shows the character of, of Jesus, that he's not... Uh, he's not... Look, his goal is not to get followers or become popular. He, he, it's not. Um, he's not presenting like a a, a sugar-coated um, like many of specific pastors that. But uh, a sugar-coated um, life is great, and and if you follow me, it's going to be easy and. You'll have, I'll bless you, and you'll have lots of money and a great retirement. Um, and I think he's really honing in on the on the point of something that he teaches at another place in Scripture, where he says, "Take up your cross and follow me." Like it's it's a fully immersive process. You can't take like a piece of Jesus. You can't take like, oh, I like these teachings and I like this be nice and be kind and I like the fruit of the spirit you have you have to take the whole gospel and the whole person of Jesus um, you have to take it all and, and absorb kind of the whole DNA of who he is and what he taught and surrendering and coming under that authority um, and I think Jesus is like a poet he's an He's an artist. A lot of scripture is is poetic and art and poetry, and I, I think that's kind of a piece of it too. A, a huge portion of the scriptures are poetry, and this is obviously not literal, like you said. Like he's not calling us to cannibalism, um, but there is an element of like art to his speech and what he's setting up and the pictures and the imagery and um, the foreshadowing of revelations. And it's also what he's about to do. He's about to like get up on a cross and his literally give us his flesh and give up his blood. Mm -hmm. I think it's the representation of And so what the symbol of like the Christian faith hinges on the cross and Jesus dying and rising again and so I think that's why we take the Lord's Supper that's why it's like a universal Christian symbol is we have to remember that Jesus was broke his body was broken and his blood was poured out it's such a found you know there are lots of things like even kind of your question about do we choose or does God choose free will versus predestination all these kind of things that are not necessarily central to the Christian faith, but this is something that is central. Yeah, so, yeah, I 
that sounds sounds about right. There, there's a lot of um, like Jesus uses I forget the word for it, but he's using like things that we can see and understand as humans that that as um, God, it's not like literally the same thing, but he's given us a word picture to kind of illustrate something. So Jesus calls himself the bread of life in the, in the John passage that I was referring to. And he talks about how if you, if you eat that bread, you'll never hunger again, or, or you'll never thirst again. And so what he's talking about is not like some physical hunger and thirst, um, but it's, he's talking about the eternal life that you will have when you, when you eat of who Jesus is and, and what he has done on the cross on our behalf. So it's a way of identifying with that, receiving it. We, you know, are saying, hey, this is something that we um, believe and um, we're ingesting, so to speak. That makes more sense? Mm -hmm. It's a great question, though. And you, there's a, within Christianity, there's, there's a little bit of, um, of some different views of kind of ex exactly what that means, exactly what's happening as we take communion together. But um, yeah. So let me bounce back to to this. Um, are you a disciple who, uh, like Mary, is ready to worship Jesus with all that you have, like? Mary wasn't, she didn't, it doesn't say she gave up everything that she had, but it seems to be not a huge deal to her that she's using this expensive gift on Jesus. So obviously his value is at least more than that 300 denarii in her mind. Or are you a disciple that just kind of wants to bring Jesus along and you're going to trade him in when something better comes along? And they can look so similar for so long because Judas hung out with Jesus. Judas was one of these guys who dipped his hand in the dish with Jesus. He's part of this kind of inner family of brothers of Jesus. And he could look so much, you can look so much like a friend of Jesus, but times will come that will reveal your heart and it will reveal one way or the other who your heart is pointed to, who your affections are pointed to. Now y'all, there is room for failure in this. We're going to see next week Peter, who had some failing in this, right? Um, and it, frankly, if we weren't going to fail, then Jesus doesn't have to like go through with what he's about to go through on the cross. But I think that, and I hope that we can tonight just think through as we look at this passage is just to ask this question like where is my heart do I find Jesus so valuable that I desire to worship him with all that I have or is there something that would like trump the worth of Christ if there was this ideal opportunity that presented itself like would I ditch Jesus for something if something a little bit better came along and if you want your answer to be the first, where yes, I want to I worship God with, with everything that I have, then I think a good way to do that is going to be, hey, continue to read this story here, continue to read the next couple chapters and what Jesus provides, and you're going to see the value that he provides in your life. And um, we're going to discover that Jesus really is that valuable. So I want to ask you guys just a couple kind of questions to reflect on. You can reflect out loud. Um, first of all, what would worshiping Jesus in a similar way as this woman look like in your life or in some of our lives? What could it look like? Because we're probably not going to like break open an alabaster flask. Is it like the tidings? Like explain, like. Like giving a portion of your income. Okay. Potentially, yes, and this is, it's, in compare to the worth of Jesus, it's this stuff, this is nothing, and I, I gladly give up what I have for his sake. Okay? Otherwise, it doesn't have to be financial, that's the case here. I think um, taking a look at our, the position of our hearts, mm -hmm. like she, like you said, she put him above her own needs. And I think if we put Christ above, like, the desires of, like, our flesh or, like, of ourselves, that's 
being in a similar position of worshiping him as she did. Might there be things that we would do as a as a demonstration of our, our heart for who Jesus is that somebody else, another Christian even, might come along and say, whoa, 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 like, chill out. Have you thought about this and doing this instead? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that when you were asking that question because I think, like, a first reaction in reading scripture like this is, like, vow to a life of poverty. Like, I'm just going to give away everything I have, which some people are called to do that, to give away all their possessions and give away all their money and live that life. Um, but I was thinking through, like, I think a call in my life, at least in this season, is I feel called to the entertainment industry. Um, and in a way, that's but not just for myself, because I know that that for a large majority of that group, that they're lost. And I want to see that area in our culture redeemed, and I want to see our culture redeemed in that way. And so a lot of Christians look at that. I've had people sit down and tell me, like, eh, maybe you shouldn't do it this way, or because why don't you do this kind of movie, or that kind of movie, or take these kind of roles. Um, and so I think there are a lot of areas that it's like, it looks a little bit different for me to follow Jesus in this way than you. And it feels like it's something that's valuable to me, you know? My career and my livelihood and my passions. Um, and choosing to pursue them not for myself. If I was choosing to pursue it for myself, um, I'd probably make a lot of different choices just to get my way to the top. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say, for sure, our works, you know, like in James, we can't just confess with our mouth our faith and not live it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, like she was saying, like, the desire of your heart, if it's really there, you'll be obedient to his law. And, and, and that will show through with like your works, whatever avenue it is, you know, mm -hmm. entertainment or whatever our jobs are. Mm -hmm. The opportunities that present themselves, you know, what does your, what do you share about the kingdom that like reveals him, you know, for, yeah. for his glory. Yeah. And like probably reading this story, you don't get the idea or it doesn't seem like this woman is like, what what can I do to show that I really love Jesus? It's not that kind of work. It's a work that's flowing out of her love for him or her understanding of who he is. Yeah. 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 What I love about Jesus is he like gets all through scripture he gets asked these questions or he's in these situations where everyone's kind of looking at what's going on and he just cuts to the heart of things mm -hmm. and like Jesus Jesus does tell us to take care of the poor and, and he tells us to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and that includes like my mind how I think and how I think about finances and planning and um, but um, it's a it's a heart issue and he's always concerned with the heart so like mm -hmm. it, it Mary could have Mary could have sold that, uh, you know, she could have said, like, I, as I've been following Jesus and hearing him teaching, I, I feel like I should call, I should sell this and give it to the poor and leverage that. And that would have been okay as well. It wasn't what she was doing necessarily that was like a right or wrong answer. It was the, her heart in the matter. And in the same way, Judas was, uh, you know, Judas was saying, why don't we use this for the poor? Like, Yes, that is a good thing, but his heart was not um, was not pure in what he was doing. You, know? uh, you can do good things out of an impure heart, and um, and Jesus is concerned with the heart, of it, like your heart, which gives you a lot of grace too. To like, I don't have to do the same thing as everybody else, or 
where I don't have to make the right or wrong choice. Um, I have to say, focus on the Lord and, and cultivate a love for Him. But there's so much freedom in like, I can, yeah, I can dump the perfume or I can sell the perfume or I can save the perfume. And um, if my heart is seeking after the Lord, yeah. there's freedom in that. I'll ask kind of just the con the other side of the question. What would what would it look like for us to kind of use Jesus to get what you want? Like and obviously the Judas example is a little bit extreme. He's literally, you know, betraying Jesus. But um, I would say that there's similarities and we don't have Satan entering us um, in the same way that, that Judas had, but but we're certainly not playing on the same team as Jesus when we're valuing other things and saying, "Well, I'll take that instead." Um, so, like, what are some ways that that could look like? The last question. I feel like something I hear a lot, um, particularly maybe from younger people, is how they want to see the world and they want to travel, and it's really important for them to have adventure and travel. And so uh, talking to some people, it's like, so I'm going to be a missionary. And sometimes I think that's, you know, great, like that's good. But I think it has also been used to where some people just want to see the world and travel. They really don't have a heart for God or to serve people in that travel. But they're saying can, they do it under the missionary title. Yeah, yeah. It's like they're, they use Jesus to get what they want. Because somebody else can fit the bill, they can go do, you know, I, when I spent time in Russia, one of the gals, I'm like, you don't even, like, I don't even know if you're, like, a follower of Jesus, like, what are you doing? She's like, well, really, I just wanted to learn Russian, and the best way for me to do that, and to get it paid for was this way, and I'm like, oh, my word, and that was hard on our team, you know, but I think that happens a lot of times, but you see people, you know, that are preaching a message, and they're, all of a sudden, they think that this is something special because they touched it and then they sell it because they think they blessed it for, you know, a couple hundred bucks and they have houses everywhere and they're living these luxurious lifestyles making profit off of mm -hmm. Jesus, you know, and it's not scriptural at all, but that's what they're doing. And I guess in my own life, you know, I think I can hide behind, um, Jesus in ways I don't you know I'm sure there's ways that I'm deceived and I don't see that I do the same thing um, at times you have to give me a minute to think through exactly what that might be but I don't want to put myself above people that do that because I'm sure at times I do that isn't it um, anytime we put our own fleshly desire above mm -hmm. the desires of God what, what he desires from us I mean that's in a sense, saying, no, God, I, I don't want what what you provided, which you say is best, and I want what I want, because I think it's better than, than what you have. Like So I think yeah. Judas is saying, I, I think what I can get out of this is is better in my mind than what it looks like to, to follow right. Jesus. But then to your point, would that also mean that if I don't like my job, I should just be content with it because... That's what God has provided for me. I should not look for a better job or not pray for a better job. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Tanya. So, like I was as I was thinking through my own like application of this, I was thinking, well, what are the things that I pray for? And sometimes it's like, oh God, if you'd only if you'd give me this, and it kind of it kind of my life, my prayer life can turn into, I just want God in my life to kind of give me all the good things that I want, um, and that's super common. I mean, we've maybe all done that in different ways, um, big or small. But um, but it seems like what Jesus is after here is is to conform your desires to be like his and to desire him above all else. So uh, like when it comes to prayer, I, I, I think it's, you can find demonstrations in scripture of people praying um, for different things um, and I, it seems to be okay to talk to God about you know what what you feel in your heart and what your emotions and whatnot and what your desires are. But ultimately, the underlying desire that Jesus wants from us is that we would 
want his desires, and that takes being with him and knowing about him and uh, trusting him with our life. So um, I don't know if that helps to answer your question, um, but sometimes our desires, we think, oh, this is the best thing that I can think of when God knows there's something better than that, even if it doesn't seem better than that to us. And so, um, and, it, and it may not seem better to us even in, maybe in this life, but, um, so we just have to be careful with our own desires, right? Because we don't, we, we don't, our, our heart can be deceitful. And so we might think we want something and ultimately God knows there's something that's even better than that. With, with my personal experience, that was something that I struggled with a lot in college, was fully surrendering my desires mm-hmm. to God. Because I was, like, when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, the thought of, like, staying in Tennessee and being a stay-at-home mom drove me insane. And I was like, Lord, please, I know, like, I want what you want, but that's not what I want (laughs) and I would just I finally got to the point when I was like a junior in college where it didn't matter like the my prayers turned into Lord please make your desires my desires Mm -hmm. please like I would pray against jobs when I moved here like I would be like Lord I want this job really bad, but if you don't want it, don't even let them give it to me. So then I don't have to discern anything, and then I just don't have options. Like, it really just kind of comes down to fully trusting Christ and fully surrendering everything to to God because whatever you think you want, His is always going to be a hundred times better. Mm -hmm. Like, God's desire for your life, whether it's a job or whether it's, a relationship it's his desire for your life is always better than what your desire is and it's really important to align your heart with his like I think that verse people get mixed up all the times or misinterpreted is you know God will give you the desires of your heart but it's not the desires of your heart it's when your heart is his heart so it's important to really seek seek Christ and seek that and his will for your life if that means anything. Mm-hmm. One, thing I, <coughs> <excuse me. laughs> One thing I wanted to say about that was kind of like what you just said about the, the desire of your heart. The first part of that verse is delighting yourself in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And I was thinking of this woman uh, had brought this, this perfume. She probably purchased that and saved up the money to buy that. Probably not thinking, I'm going to pour this on Jesus. But it was something valuable to her in her life. And then when Jesus came along, she saw the value of Jesus and everything that was important to her just evaporated. It was like, mm-hmm. I gotta worship this man, who this yeah. person is. Mm-hmm. And that's that that was her way of worshiping, yeah. of giving up that part of her that was important to her. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the lesson we get out of it is that whatever we think is important in our lives that we have or want to do or want to have. When it comes to worshiping, worshiping Jesus, there's no price that mm-hmm. that meets that. Mm-hmm. So you give up whatever it is, yeah. and you say, "I'm going to worship Jesus at any cost." Yeah. And that's kind of what uh, that's the thing I get out of it. That she just gave it up, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it's it's an attitude of heart yeah. that just says that anything in my life is not as important yeah. as yeah. worshiping. That's great, Randy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, just kind of the ending little note that I wrote down is just right along those lines. If if Christ is most valuable in your heart, then you would give up anything to honor him. If it's a 300 denarii bottle, whatever, okay, that's, you know, he's it, it's worth whatever in order to honor and worship him. If Christ is valued in your life at 120 shekels or whatever price that you put on him, not infinitely valuable, but then something might come along that seems a little bit more valuable than that, and you're going to ditch Jesus to get that other thing because it seems more valuable. So I think it's the heart attitude of what, what do we truly believe about Christ and Him and and the value of Himself in our lives, which ultimately for us is infinitely and most valuable um, in that we receive instead of 
the wrath of God, we receive eternal life. So um, I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you for these examples of people in your word. Uh, thank you for this just uh, great example of this woman who um, loved you so much and uh, and recognized maybe in a way that many at the time didn't even fully uh, just how how precious and, and infinitely worthy you are to receive anything and everything that we have. Um, I pray that you would make our hearts very much like hers that adore you and, and long to, uh, to, to love you and honor you because of how generous and good um, you are uh, to us. And just as you exist, you're just holy and amazing and wonderful. Lord, may we fall so much in love with you that even the most valuable things in our life pale in comparison to you. And um, this is a work that we just depend on on you and your uh, spirit uh, to transform us in. And so we ask tonight, please, Lord, that you would do that. Amen. Amen. Amen.